Today's message is found in the Bible. Today's message is found in Psalm 34. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 34. The Psalter, 150 Psalms, is found in the middle of your Bible. So you can just open it up and then look for 34. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 22. It's a large section. My hope is afterwards our hearts will be enlarged by his word and spirit for Jesus' sake. Psalm 34. And so it's a lengthy psalm, so I'd like you to stand at the reading of God's Word. I'm only going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll be reading the the portions. There's three sections through Psalm 34 as we move through the passage together. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. Everyone there? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continuously be in my mouth. My soul makes boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, I just ask that this word will be used by your spirit today in such a way that we'll be able to understand, appreciate, enter into, and participate in Psalm 34. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So some of you know, but I'm a sucker for stories. I absolutely love stories. And um, stories, as I understand them, they're they're windows to the world. We don't just read stories for passing of time. They, They actually educate the mind, but even more so, they, they enter into our hearts and they populate our imaginations. They populate our imaginations with lively veracity so that we can live lively in our day-to-day world. Now, did you notice in Psalm 34, it perhaps for some of you looked like I started at the start of 34, but I actually didn't. There's another verse that doesn't have a number to it. And it starts off our song. These not numbered phrases are called titles or called headings. They are in the Hebrew Bible. They are original. They're not man-made. Generally, I think, we tend to skip over these verses. But, but why? They are verses in the Bible. So when you read the Psalter, read the Psalms, you will find these phrases. I'm not talking about the the bold 
headings or titles that, that man has put in there for translation uh, purposes, but rather just underneath that, do you see where it, where it says that in, in your Bibles? That's the starting of our passage for this morning. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell you a story, a story that will bring us into the context of Psalm 34 and, and begin to um, illustrate it, begin to penetrate, hopefully in our imagination, as to what exactly Psalm 34 is about. And so you should read in there these words. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. Now, where is that in the Bible, and what kind of story is that? And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him who dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in, the hands, in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to the servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men. That's the story that encircles Psalm 34. That's the story, the historical narrative in which David wrote this psalm and expressed this psalm to 400 people in a dark, dank, dungeon-like cave. It appears anyway that when he was fleeing from Saul and he went into this cave, he penned this down. He created this and expressed this to his new people. Now, in this story, you saw two characters. You saw a rejected king, and you saw his dejected people. Those are the two characters that are going on in, in David's life and through David's pen into Psalm 34, and that's the psalm that we will look at this morning. In this psalm, we see how a rejected king 
inserts or gives his joy to his dejected people. And so he's very decisive. He's very clear with his approach. And he approaches this in three ways. The first one is found in verses 1 through 3. We listened to that at the start of, of, our, of, of our sermon. He does so by first inviting the dejected to share in his joy. I bless the Lord at all times. His praise is continually in my mouth. My soul puts boasts in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and be glad, so on and so forth. So all throughout this, this introduction, all through verses 1 through 3, we see that he finds satisfaction fully in the one who delivered him from death. All the times here, we find that his joy in God is expressed through boasting over him. And we mustn't miss the obvious in this. This king, this rejected king is an exuberant king he is a happy king but notice also what he wants to do with that joy it's a gregarious joy it's a sociable joy it goes outward it goes towards people and he's sharing his very joy with those who are gathered around him the last line shifts to the invitation to those found in the cave seeking protection from the evil Saul. David's people, harassed and helpless, are to hear the invitation and come, come to share his joy fully found in the Lord. The rejected king says, let us together magnify the Lord. Now he not only shares this joy, but, but he also does something else in order to, to get his joy into this cave and into 400 dejected, discontented, indebted kinds of people. And we see this in verses 4 through 7. He says, by telling the dejected of his testimony and promises, he will move his joy into the hearts of the hearers. Now this part of the passage right here is quite interesting. Verses 4 through 7, he, he oscillates back and forth from his testimony, the rejected king's testimony, right on over to promises for those sitting in the cave. And, and you can kind of picture the cave. I mean, it's, it's a large area, as I understand it, and there's, it's, it's dark, there's, there's rocks, so they're sitting on rocks, and some are, are in a little cleft in the back, and some are right in front, very eager to hear, and they're, they're just peppered throughout this cave, these 400 sets of eyes looking at David. And so he says, here's my testimony in verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then he moves towards these people in the cave, the dejected ones, and he gives them a promise. He says, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And then he goes back to another testimony. This poor man cried, and the Lord, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
And then he looks at his audience and he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Look at the testimony in verse 4. The operative word here is sought. David knows the Lord. The word sought is never used in the Bible as something or someone we know nothing about. David knows the Lord very, very well, and thus he seeks for him. He is precisely why he has this passionate seeking of him. He knows him. He has a serious seeking. His desire is a driven desire. He is not not a confused man at all. Our king is not wandering around with few clues as to who God is and what his character and identity are. No. David has tasted to see that the Lord is good. And now he wants more God. He wants more of God. And so as a result, by this grace from God, he cries out, I need you, I want you. And God delivered him from all his fears. And so that's when he looked at the people in the cave, dejected, despondent, deadened, darkened people in a cave. And he gives them a promise. The operative word here is radiant. The king desires his distressed and downcast congregation to seek the Lord as well. Verse 5 makes plain the promise to excite the people to seek the Lord. His personal experience of deliverance leads to this attractive promise. Everyone in the congregation who believes this promise will pursue the Lord and put their trust in Him. So David's new people will be transformed from bitter in soul to radiant in face. The New Testament puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That whole passage, and it ends in verse 18, he says, Y'all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. And all of this is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see these people in the cave, It's almost like it was all dark in there and all of a sudden you start seeing a little bit of light. A little bit of light as they're believing in these promises. And this light happens to be on their faces. Light in the darkness starting to glow and grow in this congregation of 400. Isaiah puts it like this in Isaiah 60 verse 5. He says, You shall see Let that rest on you. You shall see and then be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and grow wide. What's going on in this cave? Who is this? Why are we even looking at this story 1000 B.C.? Well, David then oscillates back on over to his testimony. And here the operative word is called. Moving our attention to six, David is coming back to personal deliverance. He calls himself this poor man, signifying that for David, his strength is gone. 
His resources are depleted, and he is weak, and he is helpless. And as a result, he calls on the Lord, and the Lord heard, and David was delivered out of all his troubles. David was rescued out of Abimelech's hands. He doesn't perish. He is, as it were, delivered from death and comes back to life. He wants his personal testimony over God's faithfulness to reach the hearts of the dejected people so that they too will rejoice in the Lord. And now he comes right back to a promise. And that's found in verse 7. Operative word, encamped. To achieve his aim, namely to get his joy found in the Lord into dejected people, David shifts again to, from his personal testimony to a very pleasing promise. Those who gather around the king can anticipate deliverance and divine protection as his people respond to their troubles with an attitude of dependence upon the Lord. It's written in here, fear of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a fascinating character in the Old Testament. Perhaps you've seen him from time to time in the Old Testament. First time he pops up, he's gracing Abraham. And you notice how he fights for God's people who are trusting him. And one of the clearest manifestations of the angel found in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, is when he stands in the way of Balaam with a sword drawn and he stops the curse from reaching Israel. Perhaps we see what protection looks like for these 400 people in the cave who are joining their lives to a rejected king. The curse does not touch these people who unite themselves by faith to this kind of king. Well, lastly, we see this rejected king deeply desiring to take his joy that's exuberant and overflowing and bring it into the hearts of those who are dejected by inviting them to share and then by telling them his testimony and telling them promises. But lastly, we see in verses 8 through 22, he does so by instructing the dejected to trust in the Lord. Picking up our story, or our, our psalm in verses 8, we, we read, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, come, children, Listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the, the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the instruction coming out of the rejected king to the dejected people. And they need to listen. They need to heed. They need to obey these instructions. The first one is found in verses 8 through 10. The Lord is satisfying for those who fear him. Verse 8 is clear. This king wants the congregation to know the Lord. But this knowledge is certainly not some academic, some speculative knowledge. To boast excitedly of the Lord, the king's congregation needs to know that the Lord is satisfying. But, but here's the surprise in it. Verses 9 and 10, David's people here are told what to do. They are told to fear the Lord. So here's the question. How do you find enjoyment and satisfaction in someone you, you fear? It just doesn't make sense to me. Delighting in the one you fear just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, this is a very important doctrine for the believing church. Please listen carefully. We hear that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who trust in His unfailing love. Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. Properly treating God as He is, namely the sovereign King over all creation, visible and invisible. Properly treating God for who He is brings a reverence into our hearts over Him. But this raw power alone will not melt our hearts and move us into adoration to Him. It makes us run from Him, not to Him. But as we become convinced of His steadfast love for all who take refuge in Him, we can now see that it's not just raw power, but ravishing beauty that woos us towards Him. When we are protected in His mercy, in other words, we can pleasure ourselves in His majesty. Fearing the Lord sets us up for enjoying the Lord, and that's what we see in verses 9 and 10. Then we move on to 11 through 16, and we see that we are to learn as a humble child, a humble child, how to walk and how to talk. This is a large section in the psalm, verses 8 through 22, but it makes clear that joy in God takes instruction, and being instructed takes humility like a child. Learning how to fear the Lord in a biblical way requires humility by the congregation. And this godly fear will influence how we walk and how we pray. And lastly, we see something else about this instruction. 
that the Lord delivers the righteous from condemnation. Verses 17 through 22. How is our king going to get his joy in his people who are dejected and living in a cave? He instructs them over the fact that the Lord delivers the righteous from condemnation. In verse 17, we hear the cry for help and we see the deliverance from trouble. Then in verse 18, we notice that he is near to the brokenhearted. In verse 20, he keeps his bones from being broken. The evil will stay with the wicked and the righteous will be protected. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who take refuge in him. Verse 22. You see that? Well, I suppose it's time to conclude. Time to bring the message to a close. But I frankly do not want to just close a message like this. I desire for God to bring this message deep into the souls and hearts of those who are listening. We are encouraged to take refuge in the Lord and find our joy in Him. This is where the congregation finds safety, verse 8. And this taking refuge in the Lord means that we fear the Lord, verse 9. And this fear is defined as turning away from evil and pursuing peace. Verses 11 through 14. And the consequences of responding as such are outlined for us in verses 15 through 22. To teach this is to aim at encouraging the righteous that dependence on the Lord is the only hope for redemption. No condemnation. No condemnation for those who trust in the Lord and find their refuge in Him. But that still strikes me kind of as an outline. I think it's an okay summary of Psalm 34, but it still strikes me as just a summary. We notice distressed people in a cave who gathered around a captain who was treated as a madman by the world whose identity was obscure rejected King David, delivered from death, and now overjoyed in God. He desires to share his joy with a bunch of misfits. But tell me, tell me, who are we talking about? Why are we in 1000 B.C. and looking at a story and listening to a psalm in a cave with a bunch of people who are dead and gone? Who are we talking about? What is this all about? (laughs) There is a clue in Psalm 34. And it ends in verse 20. He says, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. The Gospel of John Chapter 19, we watch Jesus, the Son of God, delivered over to be crucified. And there, on the place called Golgotha, they crucified Him. And at the end of this crucifying, excruciating experience on the cross, He said, it is finished. 
and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And then there were some soldiers. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two criminals who were crucified with Jesus in order to hasten their death. And then they came to Jesus. And they saw that he was already dead. He didn't break the legs. He didn't break the legs. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 36, we read, For these things, all these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken. That this Scripture, all these things in first century A.D., with the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these things were done in order to fulfill the Scripture. Yes, it goes back to Exodus 14. Yes, the Paschal land. Yes, we see that there's bones aren't broken there. But David, David in 1000 B.C. looks back into that Exodus piece and he pulls it out and he sees himself as kind of a Paschal land that was delivered so that he could deliver the rest. And then it's fast-forwarded into 1st A.D., and now we see who's behind King David. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the root of David, the Passover Lamb, has delivered us from all condemnation. He has taken us away from the brutality of Satan. It's no longer Saul anymore. It's no longer King Herod anymore. It's Satan who hates Jesus still. And he goes after his people still. And these people are broken and beat up and torn up, despondent, discouraged, in debt. And they go to their man-made, self-made protections like a cave. And they just stay in there shivering, hoping that something will happen. Well, something ain't going to happen there because Jesus is the one who delivers. And he was rejected on our behalf. And he went into our caves on our behalf. And he showed that his father crushed him, but yet took him out of death. The bonds of death will not keep Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus actually happened. And he was delivered from death. And he's overjoyed. And then he starts moving and going into the crooks and the crannies of your life. And he says these words, Psalm 34, and he shows himself to be the rejected king with his dejected people. Are you willing to stand up and believe Psalm 34 and be counted? I'm a dejected person because I'm looking at the rejected king and I'm filled to overflowing with hope and joy and peace and safety and security. And then we know that when we die, there is no condemnation at all. All sins lifted up and taken away. You owe no debt, and you are transformed from dejected into delighted. That's Jesus the Christ, 
the Son of God. That's the one who's displayed before us today in Psalm 34. And He's the one who actually is voicing this in our day, in our time, in our moment right now. So I want to invite you into this. Most of you have heard the invitation. His voice has gone into the chambers of your soul. And you've heard the voice. And you've turned from your sins. And you've trusted Him. And you are glad in God that gives glory to God. This is the Christian life. But I'm still going to invite us all. Some of you perhaps never have taken this invitation. Most of you have. But you need a renewed participation in the invitation. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Please do now. And I want you to hear verses 1 through 3. Not from David's lips, and certainly not from Dan's lips, but from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul boasts in the Lord. Oh, let the afflicted hear and be glad. Glorify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt His name together. And all of God's people said, Amen.